Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I don't know about you all, but when I think of summer in the city, I think of butts. Well, you know I'm thinking about butts all year round, but there is something about tight shorts and sunshine that really gets me in that anal state of mind. Luckily, it's anal August at the Pleasure Chest. All month long, the Pleasure Chest will be opening up about their favorite taboo topic, butt stuff. Bounce on over to their blog at pleasurechest.com as they unpack all the joys and benefits of this oh-so-enjoyable orifice with guest blogs from Aneros Prostate Massagers and Tushy Bidets. Follow at Pleasure Chest Stores on Instagram for some great butt sex giveaways from B-Vibe or come into any Pleasure Chest store and get a free Cal Exotics Booty Rocker Silicone Butt Plug with any purchase over $40. Want to learn more about anal sex? As always, you can attend one of Pleasure Chest's free weekly workshops, which are particularly bootylicious all August long. I'll see you there. So this episode is a little different from my usual format, but definitely still very on brand. To explain, so back in March of 2017, I got an email from Lauren Barry Kagan, who was then a junior at Skidmore College in upstate New York and the president of Skidmore's Pride Alliance. Lauren had the great idea to bring me to Skidmore to do a lecture version of an article I'd recently published entitled, Why Sex Work Decriminalization Matters to Feminists. So I thought, in light of all the fallout we're experiencing from FOSTA-SESTA in America right now, that this would be a really good time to clean up the audio I recorded at the lecture and release it on the podcast feed. It's not the best sound quality, but I hope that the content will give you some fuel for the conversations I know you're all having right now with your loved ones and communities about sexual labor and gender justice. So thanks to Lauren, to Skidmore, to all the students who attended, and also to Refinery29 for publishing the original article. Let me know what you think. Okay, here's Lauren introducing me. It's part of Social Justice Month. I'm so glad to see you all here. So I'm going to introduce our speaker now. Um, I don't remember exactly how I first learned about Tina Horn, but it was, I think, my senior year of high school, and I started reading her work and um, her podcast, and I'm just really excited uh, to bring her here. Um, so Tina Horn is a writer, a teacher, a media maker, a queer punk, and a karaoke host, I learned today. Um, she produced and hosts the podcast Wired People Into That uh, about sexuality, kink, and love 
um, and she's the author of two books, which she brought, a collection of nonfiction stories about sex workers called Love Good Not Given Lightly, and a guide to the ethics and etiquette of modern relationship communication called Sexting. Her writing has also appeared on Refinery29, Jezebel, Vice, The Toast, The Rumpus, The Sluttest, and The Establishment, and in the anthologies Girl Sex 101, Best Sex Writing 2015, and the coffee table book that everyone needs, Unshaven. Tina's workshops on dirty talks, sex worker self-care, and spanking have been featured at the Woodhull Sexual Freedom Summit, The Pleasure Chest, Kink.com, Lesbian Sex Mafia, International Ms. Leather, The New School, uh, the Feminist Porn Conference, and she's also spoken at NYU. She is a Lambda Literary Fellow, a recipient of two Feminist Porn Awards, and holds an MFA in Creative Nonfiction Writing from Sarah Lawrence. Tina Horn. Thank you, Lauren. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for having me. I'm really excited to be giving this lecture today. This is actually the maiden voyage of this talk. I've never given it before. It's based on an article that I wrote that was on Refinery29. So the name of the article is 10 Reasons Decriminalizing Sex Work is a Feminist Issue. And here's the intro. Should prostitution be a crime? Can you guys hear me pretty well in the back? Should prostitution be a crime? Asked the May 5th, 2016 New York Times Magazine cover story, which you see up here. This headline appeared in simple block letters over restrained, fully clothed photographs of a bunch of people I've had sex with for money. Now bragging aside, the sex workers portrayed in this photo spread and its well-reported accompanying article are my community and my friends. I've mostly retired from pro-doming porn and the many parts of the sex industry in which I worked for the past decade, but I remain involved in advocating for the human rights of sex workers in my nonfiction writing. My colleagues ri risked so much stigma and backlash by coming out on this international platform. Their courage makes a powerful statement. They do not deserve to go to jail for doing the job they've chosen to do. Nobody does. Is prostitution just another job? This question was on the cover of New York Magazine, same week, also, you can see up here on the slide. Although these are two separate publications, it was impossible not to see these two questions in conversation, as if the answer to one was a material condition of the other. If prostitution is just another job, then it shouldn't be a crime. Prostitution is absolutely just another job, as is stripping, pro-doming, cam modeling, and porn performing. These jobs should absolutely be decriminalized and destigmatized. And while people of all genders do these jobs, the matter of decriminalization is very much a feminist political issue. Now, many intelligent, well-informed, self-described feminists believe that sex work should never be decriminalized. In fact, the decriminalization of sex work is perhaps the single most divisive subject within feminist discourse today. This divide is the result, in my opinion, of a moral blind spot on the part of anti-sex work feminists, or antis as we call them. They conflate all sex work unconditionally with rape, trafficking, and patriarchal exploitation. Ultimately, this is based on a very unfeminist, if you ask me, distrust 
of the loud and powerful testimony of sex workers themselves, who, as individuals and organizations, have called over and over again for decriminalization to keep, to keep us safe from violence, stigma, and exploitation. I think that this comes from an inability of the antis to put themselves in the sparkly six-inch heels of a sex worker. They can't imagine what it would be like to wear nothing but a G-string and undulate on stage to a Prince song. They don't understand the catharsis of consensual sadomasochistic whipping, and they can't comprehend how sexual and emotional intimacy can be employed strategically as labor. Just because a challenging job isn't the right choice for you doesn't mean it can't be the right choice for somebody else. Sex work is a job for which some people are better suited than others. Those who want to do it should be allowed to. Those who don't should not be forced to. This is true of sex without commerce and commerce that doesn't involve sex. So here are 10 things that matter to sex workers as well as women in general. And if these things matter to you, maybe sex worker rights matter to you more than you thought. So the 10 things that we're gonna talk about today are representations of sex workers in popular culture, the agency of sex workers to choose the job that's right for them, issues of class in sex work, issues of misogyny in the way that sex workers are treated, rape culture, emotional labor, public health, transgender rights, trafficking, and maybe a discussion of a sex work utopia. So just a quick disclaimer, um, obviously people of all genders do sex work, um, but for this lecture, I'm gonna focus on women who do sex work, which of course includes trans women because trans women are women. My definition of sex work for the purpose of this lecture is any exchange of erotic services for money or other things of value, such as shelter. These services may include intercourse with the paying individual, fetish or kink practices, or a performance on stage or for a camera. Shorthand for such work includes prostitute, whore, dominatrix, porn star, cam model, stripper, etc. And of course, some of these words, uh, whore being a very good example, are words that are reclaimed epithets, right? So in the same way that we might reclaim the word cunt and women might proudly call themselves cunts or call their genitals cunts, or the way that uh, I might uh, proudly call myself a dyke, even though, or queer for that matter, um, even though those are words that have been weaponized against me in my community, I think we're probably all here at least somewhat familiar with the idea of reclaiming um, those words. So in the sex work community for many people, um, words, like, uh, words like whore and hooker are those kinds of reclaimed epithets. Um, and the thesis of this lecture, what I intend to prove, is that the social stigma of whorephobia, aka the fear of sex workers, is the real issue that faces sex workers and the real issue in fe within feminist discourse. The decriminalization of sex work, and of course, we know the difference between decriminalization and legalization, is that decriminalization is the removal of laws against buying and selling sex, whereas legalization refers to a system of government regulation of sex work. What the sex worker rights movement overall is, is fighting for is decriminalization, not necessarily legalization. 
Um, so decriminalization of sex work would lead to a reduction of whorephobia, which would reduce violence and misogyny, leading to a healthier world for women, and maybe everybody. Sound good? Cool. So, number one, pop culture. Representations of sex workers in pop culture are reductive. So, just to start us off with some salacious pictures, um, does anybody recognize any of the pop culture sex workers um, in the screen? You can just call it out. Yeah, of course, probably the most famous representation of a prostitute in all of cinema is Julia Roberts uh, in Pretty Woman, the 1990 film. Um, any, anybody else? Les Mis. Yes, Les Mis. I've got some drama queers in the house. That's good. Um, yes, yeah, so that's Anne Hathaway uh, winning an Oscar for playing Fontaine in Les Mis. Um, any, anybody recognize anybody else? That's Jennifer Aniston in a movie you, I wouldn't blame you for never having seen, um, called We're the Millers. Has anybody seen this movie? Unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Listen, I don't begrudge anybody, uh, your, uh, you know, I, I love dumb comedies as much as the next person. Uh, We're the Millers came out a couple of years ago, and in it, Jennifer Aniston sort of plays just one more uh, in a line of cinematic stereotypes of, um, you know, the aging stripper or the desperate single mom stripper or the woman whose um, role as a uh, stripper is the butt of the joke. Anybody else? It's totally Britney Spears doing one of her many stripper-themed routines, as is um, sometimes a popular thing for pop stars to do. In the top left-hand corner here is a, a very old um, episode of Law & Order, which starred Laverne Cox, pre-Orange is the New Black, um, playing a uh, transgender prostitute. Actually, these top three are all from the Law & Order universe. Um, the woman here on the, um, on the right is Lady Heather. Does anybody watch CSI? Is this familiar to any of you? This is like something that my mom likes. She is like the dominatrix that is like sometimes brought in as like a consultant for like weird, sexy, underground um, cases. And she was a, a good example that I found of um, a stereotype that actually like really particularly bugs me that we'll get to on the, on the next slide. And then of course, um, in the top in the middle there, I tried to get the, the least uh, graphic picture uh, or depiction that I could find of um, possibly the most classic representation of sex workers in uh, television and movies, which is uh, being dead. That is all too common and uh, is usually just used as a, as a plot device. Is there any other like sex work in popular culture that anybody can think of that they don't see here? There's the new movie that I don't think has come out yet, Rough Night. Ah uh, yes, thank you for bringing up Rough Night. What do we know from the trailer about this film, Rough Night? Um, love of My Life, Alana Glazer is in it. Mm. Um, love of My Life, Kate McKinnon, also in yeah, it. Yeah. Uh, the basic plot is that there's a group of female friends who are in Vegas for a bachelorette party, and through a series of unfortunate events, uh, they hire a male stripper, and he oh, ends up dead, right. and they have to figure out what to do. Um, and also, the way he dies is, it's in the trailer, it's not a spoiler, is problematic, uh, because one of the friends, who's a fat woman, like, jumps on him, and he hits his head, and that's how he dies. So there's, like, weird stuff around size, and then this, like, cliche of, like, the dead 
totally really, really good example of a movie that's not even fucking out yet and that has already got us all pissed off. There are many movies, Very Bad Things is a, another sort of forgettable comedy from the 90s that is sort of like the gender inversion of Rough Night where the idea that, you know, if you hire a stripper for a bachelor party and then if that stripper dies, that that is just like a, like a funny, zany inconvenience for you. Yeah. That's, that's right. I haven't seen it, but I have heard that. I think, in, by and large, sex workers are actually happy with the way that sex work was represented in the movie Deadpool, which is not a sentence I ever thought I'd say, but... It's never demonized in the movie, and it's not like a plot of trying to get her to stop doing sex work at all. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> the bar is so low. <laughs> so let's break some of these down. Pretty Woman would be sort of like the archetype of either, you know, the Cinderella Pygmalion story of, you know, a woman being like redeemed through wealth and trained to be upper class and therefore finding love and happiness. And also, you know, the, the prototypical hooker with a heart of gold. As I mentioned with Anne Hathaway, you know, there have been many actresses who have won Oscars by playing, you know, this uh, archetypical hooker with a heart of gold. Part of what's so offensive about this idea of hooker with a heart of gold is the idea that you would like need that quantifier, like that, you know, like hookers are not people with hearts, that it's like an exceptional and interesting story that the hooker has a heart of gold. And then of course the the message of, of Pretty Woman, spoiler alert for a movie that came out in 1990, is that, you know, heterosexual, monogamous, wealthy love um, is the ultimate prize and that through that, even if you have been even if your, your womanhood and your sexuality has been tainted by supporting yourself by having sex for money, that, that through this heterosexual, monogamous, wealthy love, um, that you can find redemption. In Les Mis, uh, also uh, another musical, uh, Miss Saigon, uh, you have sort of this like classic opera trope of a woman sacrificing herself for her child, but you know, in the case of both of these, both of these stories, you know, you have a woman who is who degrades herself by prostituting herself, but then is redeemed through the arc of the story by committing suicide or, um, in, in Fantine's uh, case, getting consumption after like one night on the job. But the point is, is that like through the sort of logic of the story, um, that uh, sacrificing herself uh, by become by going from being the the whore to being the Madonna, right? Um, by committing that ultimate act of motherhood and selflessness, she is redeemed. Striptease is another example of a movie like We're the Millers, the Jennifer Aniston movie that we were talking about, you know, where you have the desperate single mom stripper. Usually the plot of these movies is centered around the idea that, you know, the, the woman loses, you know, male support, and the only way that she can support herself is by degrading herself um, in order to feed her child. Of course, it is totally true that many people choose to to be strippers or to be prostitutes or to be pro-doms in order to support their families, but usually what we see in the movies with this is the idea that that is a degrading thing that she wants to try to escape from or that she needs someone, preferably a man, to save her from. Lady Heather on CSI, as I mentioned, um, is an example of this trope that really pisses me off, which is the idea that being a dominatrix is just like a way for mean girls to make money. It's actually, uh, 
difficult job that requires a lot of skill. I think that you could probably think of a lot of the time um, in movies where the idea of somebody who's just like inherently a bitch can just like magically make money from being a bitch um, if she puts on like a vinyl corset, which is of course not true. Um, and then we do have the uh, dead hooker, which sends the message that um, violence against sex workers uh, is a plot device and that women and sex workers in, in particular um, are basically just uh, props for the story. So number two, agency. Every woman deserves the agency to choose the job that's right for her. So let's talk about some myths about women's agency that we see in the way that we, um, that we talk about sex work in the mainstream. Number one, myth. Sex work is never a choice that any woman would make. In reality, every woman has the right to make the choice that is right for her life and her body, right? It, it, sound, it sounds simple, but this this sort of par this ideological paradox here comes up a lot, especially within like interfeminist uh, discourse uh, fights about sex work and whether it, it should be decriminalized and whether um, it's uh, something that is like a viable option for women to do, whether it's essentially exploitative, essentially degrading, etc. Myth number two, sex work is okay as long as you're an empowered happy hooker. The Happy Hooker is the name of a memoir that came out in the 70s written by um, a European woman named uh, Xaviera Hollander. I think it's a great book, I highly recommend it. It's funny, she's a great writer um, and it's a very interesting story, but her, she's, she has sort of become like the icon of the like empowered can-do prostitute. A lot of the time what we see people trying to make this intellectual leap like, well, I guess sex work is okay, but um, you know, it's only okay if it's empowering sex work and it's only okay if you really like your job every single day. And you know, this limitation um, is really hard on those of us who do or have done sex work where we don't feel like we can talk about the bad days that we had at work or the bad situations that we have at work, everything from something that is annoying to something that is life-threatening, um, because we're worried that we're gonna be perpetuating the idea that sex work is, again, inherently exploitative, inherently degrading. Um, it's the kind of thing where one example tends to get, um, you know, conflated um, or uh, inflated to represent an entire population. Whereas in reality, you don't actually have to be happy to deserve labor rights. So you don't actually have to love your job to deserve rights on your job. And when your job involves pleasure and emotional labor, that can get a little bit murky. Myth number three, sex work is a dead end job. I personally credit my marketing skills with my experience in sex work. I credit my ability to cooperate um, with large groups of people to my experience with sex work, um, my ability to manage money to my experience with sex work, and there are many, many other skills that many different people working in different parts of the industry that I know have gained from this work. And you know, the, we're, the actual problem is that people don't feel like they can put those things on their resume because of how stigmatized sex work is, but that doesn't mean that the job itself is a dead end, it means that the stigma is what is limiting to us. The next myth, sex work exploits women. Well, I would say
say that capitalism exploits everyone. Thank you. <laughs> um, so it's not actually the sex part of sex work that is exploitative, it's the work part. Can, does, is anybody here never felt exploited at a job? Okay, is, has anybody here felt exploited at a job that wasn't sex work? Has anyone ever ever wished that they didn't have to do their job, but they had to, because you live in a capitalist society? Cool, that's what I thought. <laughs> uh, the last myth that I want to talk about is the idea that sex work makes people think less of you. You know, that is such a twisted argument because actually the stigma is the problem that we need to fight. The idea that sex work would make, would, would lessen you, that the idea that sex work would be degrading is the idea that we need to fight. So it's nothing inherent to the work itself that makes less of you. Hey everyone, I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash boast. sex worker rights movement quite a lot in the past few years, um, and I'm a big fan of it. So I want to do a little bit of mapping of the horror, horror hierarchy, or the hierarchy with you right now, and, and I, something that I just really want to emphasize is that this is mapping the way that sex workers are perceived through the lens of stigma, okay? So I just really want to emphasize, these are not things that I actually believe, these are not things that I would think that any of you would believe or I would hope that you don't believe, but nevertheless, they are stigmas that, that sex workers have to deal with and also that sex workers have to deal with in terms of internalized whorephobia, right? An internalized hierarchical thinking, right? So let's map this out a little bit. At the very top, with the least amount of stigma affecting them would be your common everyday slut. I don't know if we have any common sluts here in the room today. You know, the reason that I include common sluts um, on the hierarchy is that I think that any of us who are promiscuous or are perceived to be promiscuous have gotten a little taste of whorephobia. And you can even see that in the way that whore is a word that is used, that is weaponized against people even if Nobody actually believes that that person has exchanged sex for money, right? But whore is kind of synonymous with slut sometimes. So at the top of the hierarchy, we have common sluts. Moving down a little bit, we have your, uh, your sex adjacent jobs, right? I am mostly retired from sex work, um, but I do still experience 
whorephobia, just in the fact that I'm here today giving you guys a lecture about sexuality, right? I do a podcast about sexuality. I write books about sexuality, right? So stigma and the fear that people have around sexuality, particularly female sexuality, is something that I experience, like even, even though I'm like not performing in porn anymore. Relative to the stigma that affects actual sex workers, it is less, but um, it, it's um, significant nevertheless. So moving down, sort of in, this, in the same level, I would put, you know, sort of the high class escort. It's not a mistake that I use the term high class, although I would put it in quotations. An escort being a prostitute who uh, usually works indoors, um, maybe works through an agency, maybe charges a very high hourly rate, expects to go out to fancy restaurants and stay in fancy hotels while performing um, the sexual services that are um, a part of her job. Somewhere around that same area uh, in terms of the way that stigma affects them on the hierarchy would be uh, BDSM pros, so any kind of kink or fetish provider of sex work. So, you know, pro doms like a dominatrix, uh, professional submissives, professional switches. A lot of BDSM professionals don't actually, don't have sex with their clients. Of course, sex can be very broadly defined. So like a dominatrix might fuck a man in the ass with, or fuck a client in the ass with a strap on, I should say, um, but not actually allow the client to, to penetrate her. Um, and she would say, I don't have sex with my clients. That's up for, of course, everybody to self-identify and decide. But because there is a general understanding that um, that a dominatrix or a fetish provider doesn't, you know, have penetrative uh, intercourse, like doesn't bottom, uh, doesn't sexually bottom, I should say, in in her work, there's less stigma that affects her in general. So moving down, we've got kind of cam models and porn performers, right? So there's this sort of like weird mindfuck that happens with the way that stigma affects escorts versus porn performers because on you know one way uh, that people look at it is that you know uh, porn performers you know have sex with other sex workers on a controlled set they don't actually like get hired by a client to have sex with them right so in that way there's like less stigma affecting them but then again that imagery, that sexual imagery is like on the internet for, or like in, you know, in like a VHS bin um, <laughs> off of an interstate um, uh, forever and ever and ever, right? Whereas an escort can be completely discreet in her work and be totally private and no one would ever actually know or she, there's like less possibility of, of her being exposed or for her privacy being violated in the in the work that she does. So these you you start to see that these issues of, you know, who penetrates who and what control does one have over one's privacy, these things are related to stigma and perception. Getting lower and lower on the hierarchy um, are strippers. I think that we probably all have associations of strippers with being trashy, with desperation with you know not making probably like a whole lot of money but uh you know not really having any other option you know as we were just talking about you know strippers in movies are often just seen as um as props or as like writhing background material or you know dead bodies and so through through this i think you can probably start to see how class is mapped along this hierarchy.
people who do full body central massage or FBSM, you know, the people that work in hand job parlors. I worked in a hand job parlor for a while. Uh, it was fine, but it is interesting. It was interesting for me after being a dominatrix for so long to to see how people's reaction to learning that I was working in in a hand job parlor and giving full body central massage, what their reaction to that like at a party was in terms of sort of being like disgusted by me as opposed to me saying that I like at a party I could say. Oh yeah, I'm a dominatrix. People would be like, ooh, ooh, ah, that's so cool, that's so interesting. But if they say like, oh yeah, I like give hand jobs for money, all of a sudden people are like squicked out by that. Why? Because of the hierarchy. And then at the very bottom of the hierarchy are people who may do very similar work to any of these other professions, but they do it on the street. They probably do it in more dangerous environments. They are, you know, like more associated with with desperation with poverty and are of course the most um, likely to be targeted for interactions with the police so a couple of stereotypes of the hierarchy we've kind of gone over stereotypes of the common slut is that you know they're just slutty because they want attention because they have bad boundaries, because they're too dumb to know better. Sex adjacent jobs, kind of like what I was just saying, you know, if I bring up at a party nowadays, um, oh yeah, you know, I write books and then people are like, oh, what do you write about? You know, I usually say feminism and then they don't want to talk to me anymore, so. Um, <laughs> you have to sort of deal with the fact that like people are gonna be like titillated, or they're gonna think that like the reason that I've chosen to write about sexuality is that I'm some kind of pervert, which is true, but not, not always something that I feel like discussing with a stranger. Or that, or that uh, you know, that I'm not a real writer because I write about sexuality, right? That I'm not um, a real like serious public speaker because, because I talk about this kind of stuff, right? Some of the stereotypes that are associated with escorts is that they are uh, more likely to be clean, um, that they are more likely to be educated, that they don't really need the money, that they're like doing it for the like thrills, or they like are trying to get through law school or art school or something like that, right? Uh, you guys are clearly familiar with the stereotype. Um, uh, I've mentioned this, but you know the the stereotype of um, the BDSM professionals is that they're just bitches and that's why they're doing it, um, that they're like kind of slumming it, um, that they, um, oh, this is, uh, I need to adjust this slightly, but um, uh, that, they would, that they would do it anyway, right? That like there's something just like, that like a, a dominatrix is just kind of like a dominatrix force of nature and that she just happens to make money doing what she's, what she's doing and that it's not actually like a job, just like any other job. Um, Porn performers, of course, there's that wonderful concept of daddy issues. Um, uh, people definitely have an association with porn performers that they're addicts and that that's why they perform in porn to um, support their habit, um, which is of course true sometimes, but not any reason to dehumanize them. Porn performers like won't be able to get any other jobs after performing in porn because you know they're gonna have like big scarlet P on their forehead forever. Similar with cam models, that they're just like slutty, they're like more likely to be able to offer you, you know, uh, emotional labor or GFE, which stands for the girlfriend experience. Again, that they're trashy. 
Um, strippers, again, daddy issues, had to mention it again. That they will suck dick for the right price, right? So you go into a strip club and if you can negotiate with a stripper there that you don't actually have to respect your boundaries, that she is just trying to get the most money out of you and that if you convince her or uh, name the right price or catch her at her most desperate time that you'll be able to get whatever you want from her and that strippers are catty and not supportive of one another. Full body central massage is, I would say, the kind of sex work that people most often associate with uh, trafficking victims, um, with people who are um, migrants um, from other countries um, who are uh, trapped in exploitative situations um, where they have to uh, give hand jobs all day in horrible conditions and are blackmailed and never actually get to have the better life that they want. Again, it's a stereotype, but that they are more likely to be subservient and, uh, and undocumented. And that street workers, you know, are the most desperate, the most trashy, the most dirty. Can we all see the ways that subjects of class, perceptions of class, particularly as they are associated with women, as they are associated with ideas of who is clean and who is dirty and who is smart and who has social mobility are mapped along these hierarchical stereotypes. Yeah. Great question. Um, so the short answer is that it varies um, from state to state and country to country. So there are um, countries in the world where um, prostitution is fully legal. New Zealand is one of them. There are uh, states uh, in the United States, such as Nevada, where prostitution um, is legal. In general, performing in porn and producing porn is legal in the United States, um, but there are regulations placed on it. Um, so there are all kinds of ways that you could be like fined or criminalized for making porn. Uh, cam modeling is is usually is generally considered legal as well. Stripping is generally legal, although many illegal practices go on in clubs. Usually, usually club owners taking advantage of how stigmatized the work is to, you know, uh, to practice, to have illegal uh, labor practices that benefit the club and that the dancers, uh, you know, don't really have much of a choice um, but to put up with, um, except when they unionize like they did at the Lusty Lady. Um, but uh, we can talk about that if you're curious about um, uh, sex work and labor right movements. Yeah, BDSM is like uh, like being a dominatrix is like sometimes in the gray area of the law. A BDSM scene might involve like absolutely like no touching between the client and the dominatrix or could involve like, you know, being like elbow deep in a, in a client. The ways that BDSM workers are basically sometimes like the police will like try to like make an example out of a dungeon or a place where dominatrixes work when they just kind of like want to make a statement about like cleaning up the neighborhood. It, it doesn't tend to be as prosecuted as other forms of sex work. And then in terms of escorting versus street working, you know, it's essentially the same job. It's, it's sex, it's intercourse, oral sex, vaginal 
sex, anal sex, as varying as any like sex between two or more people um, can be. And the, the difference is, is the conditions that people are working in, right? But, you know, the difference between like waiting on the street for somebody, for a stranger to, to pull up and then like getting in their car and like going around the corner, sucking their dick and getting some cash and then like walking the street again, the difference between that and like working for an agency that like sets you up to like meet your client at a nice hotel and then also have sex with them. Which isn't to say that like high class escort situations like can't sometimes be violent or unpleasant or that people working on the street can't have great experiences. But the, the difference between like being an escort and being a streetwalker has everything to do with perceptions and, and conditions of, of labor and class. Full body central massage, like hand job parlors, sort of similar to BDSM work in the sense that it's like, you know, probably like not as likely to be as like prosecuted as if you're like having like full body intercourse. I mean, all of this stuff is also so heteronormative, right? In terms of like what constitutes real sex. Technically, giving someone a hand job for money is is illegal in most places in the United States. Yeah. I just want to emphasize something that you said briefly that there's a stereotype with like escorts or maybe also porn performers and other sort of higher up on the hierarchy is that you know they're doing it to get through school right and somehow that makes it okay whereas if they were doing it to like pay for their groceries or their rent like somehow that's not okay. One hundred percent includes just like assumptions about people who do or don't go to school, which I think falls under this topic of class really well. 100%, I completely agree. And, you know, I mean, I can say from my experience as a sex worker, it's something that you see with clients in terms of assuaging the guilt that they might have about the fact that they like want to hire a sex worker and they have the means and the access and the privilege and the confidence to hire a sex worker, but they like, you know, they kind of get these messages, but they like are ignoring them in the interest of their dicks. But nevertheless, they like feel conflicted and guilty about them. So a lot of the time they, they really want to hear that, like what your reason is and it, like a reason that they can like relate to and understand that is like some kind of, as you say, like extenuating circumstance. Like, oh, well, like I really, like I need to like pay, um, you know, I have these like loans piling up from my like, dignified pursuit as if like just trying to make ends meet in a capitalist society is not reason enough to do a job that is um, available to you. All right, misogyny. Misogyny against sex workers is indicative of misogyny against all women. So I'm gonna read this quote from the World Health Organization. Most violence against sex workers is a manifestation of gender inequality and discrimination directed at women or at men and tra transgender individuals who do not conform to gender and heterosexual norms, either because of their feminine appearance or the way they express their sexuality. So the World Health Organization is saying here, and I really agree, that violence against sex workers and misogyny against sex workers is a way of policing female sexuality and also femininity and just general non-heteronormativity, gender transgression, gender non-conforming individuals, etc. Essentially, what they're saying, and I agree, is that violence against sex workers is 
violence against women. And I would take that one step further and say that criminalization makes sex workers vulnerable to violence, and therefore criminalization perpetuates violence against women and gender non-conforming people. So I wanna talk about um, a few takeaways for fighting misogyny, because if you care about fighting misogyny, you should care about fighting horophobia. This uh, comic here is by a friend of mine named Jacqueline Francis, who goes by the name Jack the Stripper. She is a writer and a comic, um, and if you look her up, she has many amazing uh, comics just like this one about life as a stripper, and they are funny and heartwarming and often really very concise at a lot of the points that um, the sex worker rights movement has been trying to make for a long time. <coughs> for example, here, this sort of typical person at a party saying, oh, OMG, you're a stripper, what's the grossest thing a guy has ever done to you? And her answer, which is, what you're asking me right now is pretty gross. Again, emphasizing the idea that stigma and discrimination is a much bigger problem than any of the problems that sex workers actually face on the job. So I'm gonna list a few examples of microaggressions that I have experienced or that my friends have experienced as sex workers, or actually not as sex workers necessarily, but that perpetuate horophobia. So for example, you look like such a hoe in that skirt, right? So if somebody, if you were like getting ready to like go out to the Power Bottom show, you would obviously wear like a tiny little mini skirt to that show, I would imagine. And your friend says, oh my God, you look like such a hoe, or you look like such a streetwalker, or that makes you look like a hooker, or you look like such a whore in that dress, right? The proper response to that would be, thank you. <laughs> because there's nothing wrong with being hoe, and the idea that by, you know, by being slutty, by expressing your sexuality, by dressing provocatively, that, that you will make people think that you're a prostitute, basically is folded into this idea of asking for it, right? That if you are uh, sexually assaulted and you were wearing a sexy outfit, you were asking for it by wearing a sexy outfit, right? Is she gonna be able to get a real job? This is something that I heard a lot. Do you guys remember the Duke star Belle Knox, do you guys remember this? This young woman who was working in porn to get her way through, through school, which I think is part of the reason, as, as you point out, that she kind of caught the public imagination, wrote an essay about what it was like to be unconsensually outed at school for being a porn star. The article like went viral and she got really famous and something that I heard a lot of people say was oh that poor girl because it was like maybe the first time they ever knowingly were talking about somebody who had worked in porn that she would never actually be able to get a real job. First of all, porn's a real job. Second of all, if there is a problem where people feel that because you've performed in porn that you're not qualified to do other jobs, that's something that we all have the power to stop because it's just not true um, and actually sex work as as i have mentioned before can give you many relevant job skills that can be relevant to many other kinds of jobs and in any case should not ever disqualify you from doing other work 
she deserved what happened to her if she took that picture. This is something that I hear a lot with the world of revenge porn that we're dealing with right now. You know, the idea that you might, and this is something that I wrote about in my, my book, uh, Sexting, which is an advice book about modern dating. The idea that if you take a sexy picture of yourself to send to a partner and then that picture ends up in the wrong hands and your privacy has been violated, it's not the fault of the person who violated your privacy, it's your fault for taking the picture in the first place. This idea, which may affect many of us who have never actually exchanged money for naked pictures of ourselves, but nevertheless have taken naked pictures of ourselves. This is a, an example of the way that whorephobia can creep into your life. There are many people who believe that you cannot rape a sex worker, and we're gonna come back to that um, in another slide. This is something that I've heard before people have wanted to book me for gigs such as this one, but wanted to know that whether or not I am currently working, right? So the idea that I'm a retired sex worker is okay for me to come and talk at a college, but if I am like going to, uh, like after this, like tear off my blazer and like put on my like mini dress and like go like work, I don't know what corners you guys have here in Saratoga that, that people work. Maybe I will check it out and that would be fine because I'm capable of doing two jobs in one night. But this is something that I would really like us to interrogate and be critical of, the idea that you are not capable of doing other work if you are also currently doing sex work. I'm a model and not some filthy horror is an example of internalized horophobia that I hear a lot or like perpetuating of the hierarchy that I hear within sex work communities sometimes that is really like hurtful and upsetting to me. It's one thing when people don't understand us but if we are not looking out for each other that's always the hardest and unfortunately I have heard you know some porn stars talk about themselves as you know being better than whores because they're like not prostitutes you know internalized stigma and phobia is a thing and then of course the dreaded concept of daddy issues which if we started unpacking that we'd be here all night so what are some ways that you can stand up to microaggressions and actual aggressions and discrimination do not tolerate the police profiling of trans women. Often trans women are um, arrested for prostitution simply for walking while being trans. So be aware of this, stand up against it. And also we can stand up against this unfair profiling without degrading the idea of being a sex worker, right? So you you can say it's not okay to assume that someone is a sex worker because of the way that they look or because of their identity or because of your assumptions about them without, without also perpetuating the idea that it would be a bad thing if they were, right? Hire someone with sex work experience and let her be out, which you guys have kind of done, so thank you. Recognize the way that civil liberties are compromised by targeting porn. Sex workers and porn stars are kind of the canary in the coal mine for a lot of sexual freedom issues. Be an informed and ethical consumer of services and products. So maybe some of the people in this room have hired an escort or a prostitute. Maybe some of you have hired a dominatrix or some kind of fetish service provider. It is much more likely that you have watched porn. It is pretty likely that you have interacted with someone on some kind of cam show. It's possible you've been to a strip club. What I really want to encourage all of you to do is just to be, as I say here, a, an informed and conscious and ethical consumer um, of the sex work that you do consume. I encourage you to find 
porn producers that whose work that you like, who are transparent about how they make their porn and actually pay for your porn. If you want some recommendations of some great ethical porn, I would be happy to make them. Be aware of your role in the horror economy. And you know, on just like a everyday level, don't demonize or pathologize our livelihood. Remember that it is our livelihood. The idea of porn addiction and sex addiction are totally myths. And of course, support decriminalization. And, and then of course, you know, how not to fight whorephobia. Don't be a white savior, white knight. Maybe after this lecture, you might be tempted to, you know, write an article for school, or maybe um, one day you become a professional writer and you um, and you want to write about sex work. Don't write about sex workers without asking us how we want to be represented, right? So don't write an op-ed or a paper about sex workers um, without actually getting getting quotes from them. You'd be surprised at how often people are just like, well, this is what I think and what I feel about sex work. So, and that, and that seems to fly with that subject in a way that it doesn't with other kinds of journalism for some reason. And lastly, do not assume that white middle-class cis women can tell you everything that you need to know about sex work. Now, I am a white middle-class cisgender woman. As that person, as uh, with all of those intersecting identities, I'm just gonna really encourage you to push further and I'm gonna give you um, other resources of other people that can tell you about all of the different experiences of sex work. So, moving on. Rape culture. I'm gonna touch on this briefly. I know that it can be very upsetting to lots of folks and it is upsetting to me. Sex workers are scapegoats for rape double standards. This is uh, Christy Mack. Christy Mack's a porn star in 2014 she was repeatedly assaulted and beaten by her ex-boyfriend who legally changed his name to War Machine. Choices. War Machine's legal defense pushed an argument that the porn star's alleged propensity for rough sex meant that the rape rap doesn't hold up, right? So this is not only whorephobic, but also kinkphobic, right? The idea that there's no way to distinguish between BDSM and abuse. War Machine's attorney said that uh, even when she wasn't acting as the on-screen seductress Christy Mack, uh, the accuser, Christy Mack, showed the quote, the desire, the preference to acceptability towards a particular form of sex activities that were outside of the norm. Luckily, just this month, War Machine was found guilty of 29 felony counts, including um, sexual assault and kidnapping. So that's good. Nevertheless, I'm, I'm sure this will not be the last time that the idea that sex workers can't be raped will be brought up in, or attempted to be used in court. Another example, in 2007, Philadelphia Municipal Court Judge Teresa Carr Denny dismissed sexual assault charges against a man who allegedly raped a prostitute at gunpoint. She ruled that the rape of a sex worker was not actually rape, but rather theft of services. The judge said at the time that prosecuting sex worker clients minimizes true rape cases and demeans women who are really raped. Okay, so this is the kind of bullshit that we've been dealing with. Who is familiar with or has been to a slut walk? This is a global event of women dressing up however they want and marching in the streets to um, protest rape culture in general, but specifically comments made by a Toronto police officer in 2011 who suggested that women should avoid dressing like sluts if they don't want to be raped. This is one way that the slut movement and the sex worker rights movement can really work together for a common good. Okay, moving on from sexual assault to emotional labor. 
uh, women have long gone uncompensated for emotional labor. Uh, here's another Jack the Stripper cartoon, and I included the whole Instagram just with all of the comments of everybody being like, oh my god, totally, this is me, I have experienced this. This is a subtitled uh, standard VIP room experience, right? So the stripper is saying, you seem to get to spend a lot of time with your kids. The client who has his head in her lap says, when you have money, that time to stick around, right? So this kind of vulnerable, tender, intimate conversation is something that is actually quite common that a lot of sex workers, myself included, have experienced a lot of the time. Men don't feel comfortable actually asking for this kind of intimacy and vulnerability, but once they actually get into the room, it's very clear that that is what they really want. Possibly because men are not allowed to express their feelings in our society because of the way that we socialize it. This uh, picture is of my friends Lorelai Lee and Matrice Madeline Marlowe, who are uh, kink.com directors and producers. This is um, them lying on top of $84,000 in real cash. Uh, I found out recently, I always thought that this picture was um, fake money, but it is not, it is real cash. They did a, uh, an auction for a cam show and somebody in Australia paid $42,000 to each of them for a cam show, which he never redeemed. So clearly there was uh, something in uh, you know, the financial domination or just like the, the novelty of giving his money to women that he, that he really just had to get off his chest and they were only too happy to take it and celebrate it. Has anybody heard of the hashtag, give your money to women? Anybody seen this? It was uh, started a couple of years ago to demonstrate um, the ways that women actually are expected to provide uncompensated emotional labor all the time. You know, a lot of sex workers jumped on this hashtag. It wasn't exclusively for sex workers, um, but a lot of sex workers did um, jump on this hashtag to talk about the ways that sex work actually provides a way for women to be compensated for this invisible work uh, and emotional labor that um, for time untold, we have just been expected to um, to just provide a giveaway. And I thought that uh, just Zimmerman's um, article on the toast on unpaid emotional labor um, was really great, so I quoted it here and I'll read it to you guys. The originators and adherents of hashtag give your money to women suggested that women should get paid for all the work they typically do for free. All the affirmation, forbearance, consultation, pacifying, guidance, tutorial, and weathering abuse that we spend energy on every single day. Imagine a menu of emotional labor. Acknowledge your thirsty posturing, $50. Pretend to find you fascinating, $100. Soothe your ego so you don't get angry, $150. Smile hollowly while you make a worse version of their joke, $200. the policing of sex work a public health crisis. Condoms as evidence is a risk to public health is what I want to argue today. So condoms as evidence or condom criminalization is the practice by police and or prosecutors of using the fact that someone is carrying condoms as evidence that they are engaging in criminal offenses related to prostitution. 
So this has been very controversial over the past few years. New York City, as of uh, 2014, claimed that they're not doing it anymore. Nevertheless, the idea of condoms as evidence um, still persists in many places. The, the laws around it are actually very confusing and enforced inconsistently. Um, and for many people uh, has created the false idea that it's simply illegal to carry condoms, right? Um, so the effect that this has is that it, um, that in places where um, condoms as evidence is either um, the law or understood to be the law, um, it disincentivizes workers, uh, sex workers, from carrying condoms and practicing safer sex, particularly for people who already live in fear of being stopped by the police. It disincentivizes populations that are, that are profiled by the police um, as sex workers, including trans and gender non-conforming folks and folks of color from carrying condoms, right? So again, you know, if you are used to being stopped and frisked just for walking while trans, for walking while black, um, for walking while being gender non-conforming, um, and you have heard or had the experience of, you know, being stopped and frisked um, and being profiled as a sex worker, and then you have condoms on you, you might be, you would probably be less likely to carry condoms with you because you don't want to be detained by the police for having condoms on you, right? So that may lead to you choosing not to have safer sex. It disincentivizes traffickers from allowing their victims to carry or use condoms, right? So um, in the case that someone is um, trafficking other people um, into sex work um, if you know they don't want their workers to be arrested so they're not going to let them carry condoms um, because then if they are stopped and they don't have condoms then they might be less likely to be detained and of course the result of this is that it heightens the risks in these populations of contracting HIV and other sexually transmitted infections or STIs as well of course as unwanted pregnancy. And the, uh, an organization called the New York Access to Condoms Coalition said no one should be forced to choose between safer sex and arrest regardless of whether the person is engaged in sex work or profiled as such. According to the World Health Organization, Sex workers, their clients, and regular partners are key populations at risk for HIV infection. Contextual factors such as stigma and poverty may further exacerbate sex workers' vulnerability to HIV. And according to Avert HIV and AIDS, the, an organization, um, an AIDS advocacy um, organization, sex workers may be more vulnerable to HIV due to large numbers of sex partners, unsafe working conditions, the inability to negotiate condom use, social stigma and discrimination, and criminalized work environments, right? So the conclusion of all of this is that um, when sex work is criminalized, and particularly when safer sex and the ability to, to protect yourself and have the labor conditions and make the choices, the risk-aware assessments that are right for you, when those are policed, um, it can lead to less safe conditions, which leads sex workers to be at risk and an at-risk population for HIV infection. So moving on, trans rights. Sex work is an option available to trans women, but they aren't always treated equally. 
So a 2015 Washington DC Trans Coalition survey of transgender people found that 60% of respondents who make less than $10,000 a year had engaged in sex work. More than one third of those surveyed reported exchanging sex acts for money, housing, drugs, or a combination of the three. 36% of the trans population in DC remains unemployed, which is nearly six times the general population of DC's in, uh, unemployment rate. Many turn to sex work because of a vicious cycle where they face discrimination and harassment that makes finding employment difficult. And uh, this is a quote from 2015 DC Trans Coalition Survey. Your only recourse is the more informal underground forms, including those that are criminalized, like drug selling, like sex work. And then they give you criminal records and you're trapped. The, a human rights campaign survey said that at least one in five transgender people surveyed report uh, experiencing employment discrimination. So this is not specifically transgender people who have experiences in the sex trades, this is trans people in general, at least one in five of those surveys report experiencing employment discrimination. So employment discrimination is a huge issue among the trans community. More than one third of the 53 victims in recorded transgender homicides from 2013 to 2015 were engaged in survival sex work. Treating prostitution as a crime leads to more violence against transgender sex workers. And so I work with an organization called the Red Umbrella Project in New York City that amplifies the voices of sex workers um, through uh, advocacy, such as the rally that you see here, uh, as, as well as books and podcasts and, and various other programs. In 2014, the Red Umbrella Project released a report called Criminal Victim or Worker, which was a report on transgender sex work and sponsored by the Red Umbrella Project, the National Center for Transgender Equality, and the Best Practices Policy Project. Um, and the report urges policymakers and legislators to repeal criminal laws for prostitution and related offenses. Building on data from the National Transgender Discrimination Survey, Meaningful Work, Transgender Experiences, and Sex Trades concludes that, that decriminalization is, quote, essential to protect the safety of people in sex trades and to combat HIV. So I, I found out today that um, Janet Mock came and spoke to this group a couple of years ago, so I'm excited to be following in her footsteps. Well, amazing. I'm like literally following in her footsteps. <laughs> Janet Mock is an amazing uh, writer, public speaker, um, advocate. I want to read out loud what she said about the role of sex work in feminism on the occasion of the Women's March. Quoting Janet Mock, I wrote the line, and this is from the, um, the official statement of the Women's March, and uh, quote, and we stand in solidarity with sex workers' rights movements. It is not a statement that is controversial to me because as a trans woman of color, who grew up in low-income communities and who advocates, resists, dreams, and rights alongside these communities, I know that underground economies are essential parts of the lived realities of women and folk. I know sex work to be work. It is not something that I need to tiptoe around. It's not a radical statement. It's a fact. My work and my feminism rejects respectability politics, whorephobia, slut-shaming, and the misconception that sex workers or folks engaged in the sex trades by choice or circumstance need to be saved 
that they are colluding with the patriarchy by, quote, selling their bodies. I reject the continual erasure of sex workers from our feminisms because we continue to conflate sex work with the brutal reality of coercion and trafficking. She's a badass lady. Uh, her book, Redefining Realness, I cannot um, recommend enough. So I'm gonna briefly touch on the subject of trafficking and consent and make the statement that conflating trafficking with consensual sex work actually hurts trafficking victims. So this is a <laughs> this is a quote from the Amnesty International recommendation from a couple of years ago, uh, calling for the global decriminalization of sex work. Uh, Amnesty International is one of the largest and most respected human rights organizations in the world, and Amnesty International had this to say: "There is no reliable evidence to suggest that decriminalization of sex work would encourage human trafficking." But criminalization of sex work can hinder the fight against trafficking. For example, victims may be reluctant to come forward if they fear the police will take action against them for selling sex. Where sex work is criminalized, sex workers are also excluded from workplace protections, which could increase oversight and help identify and prevent trafficking. And finally, I wanna talk a little bit about a sex work utopian vision and suggest that you might actually enjoy a world in which sex work is legal and destigmatized as well as decriminalized. This is a picture that I took of some sex workers that I marched with at the DC Women's March. So I'm gonna quote that um, Red Umbrella report from 2014. Decriminalization will make it far easier for sex workers to screen clients, report violence, access social services, and find employment outside the sex trade without the burden of a criminal record. And this italicized part is from my, um, my piece on Refinery29, so I'm just gonna read it. What if you could hire someone who was totally your type, who was exceptionally well-groomed and dressed, who would meet up with you exactly when you want, to listen to your problems, cuddle you, expertly make out with you, rub your shoulders, go down on you, or take you to pound town, and then never blow up your phone with the feelings they've caught. It doesn't sound half bad, does it? Take it from someone who's been on both sides of the equation many times. Hiring a sex worker can be incredibly therapeutic and fun, and women just don't do it often enough. To close, I just wanna read from this uh, pamphlet uh, issued by the Safety First Coalition um, which is coordinated by the English Collective of Prostitutes, because I think that they really concisely summarize um, a lot of the points that we've been talking about today. Decriminalization of sex work would increase safety. Sex workers could work together and report violence without fear of arrest. Enhance health. Sex workers could access services without discrimination. Recognize sex workers as workers with rights to fight for better working conditions and wages. Free police time and resources to tackle violent crimes such as rape, rape, trafficking, and racist attacks. Protect immigrant sex workers from being targeted for raids and deportation. Recognize that sex workers, mostly mothers, contribute to the survival of families and communities. End criminal records which bar access to other jobs. Reduce police corruption, enabling sex workers to report wrongdoings. Stop the government profiteering from fines and confiscation orders. 
and help end the hypocritical stigma attached to sex work. So here is a list of a few resources. The Whorecast is a, a great sex worker podcast that I produce sometimes that is, was created and is hosted and produced by Susie Q, who's an amazing advocate for sex workers. If you are curious about getting involved in the sex worker rights movement, the Sex Worker Outreach Project, or SWAP USA, the Sex Worker Project, different organization, the Red Umbrella Project in New York City, uh, St. James Infirmary in San Francisco. The Red Umbrella Project's a big program of the past few years um, was a memoir writing workshop, which they collected into an anthology called Prose and Lore, which is a really great resource for first person memoir stories from a lot of different kinds of sex workers, right? So not just, not just your, uh, happy hookers. If you want something that is a little bit more political and focused on labor rights, I uh, but nevertheless still uh, pretty short and, and readable, I cannot recommend enough Melissa Jira Grant's book, Playing the Whore. A really, really great contemporary book about sex worker labor rights. The Establishment is a great feminist blog that has a lot of sex worker writers on it. Coming Out Like a Porn Star is an anthology curated by the gender queer porn star Jiz Lee. Also a really great anthology with a lot of different uh, voices of a lot of different kinds of people working in the porn industry, specifically talking about coming out, which ends up of course being a lot of stories about stigma and what it is like to uh, face it head on. Cheyenne Dora Show, who works with the Red Umbrella Project, wrote an amazing cookbook about being a trans sex worker and what it was like to get um, back on her feet after being incarcerated for sex work um, by learning to cook. Uh, Spread Magazine was an awesome uh, sex worker run magazine and they um, have an anthology out in the feminist press. Also lots of, uh, I really tried to emphasize like anthologies that have like lots of different kinds of voices in them. Melinda Chateaubert um, wrote a book called Sex Workers Unite, a history of the movement from Stone wall to slut walk so that is a great like if you want like a like a history book about the movement um i i highly recommend that book and that's my talk you like to look five years younger in a clinical study people that had volume added with juvederm voluma xc in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment look younger feel like you add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with juvederm voluma xc reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with juvederm velour xc for important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.